Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Metaphysical Milkshake, the show where we go deep, we get weird, and we search for the meaning of life along the way. Presented by Cast Media and Soul Pancake. Hey there, Metaphysical Milkshakers. It's me, Rain Wilson. And it's me, Reza Aslan. How you doing, Rain? Well, I've been better. I'll be oh, honest. What's going on, man? What's going on? Well, Tell me. Talk to me. The world, it needs a lot of changing. Reza, and uh, sometimes it gets me down. Things, uh, things are hard, and um, it's a lot of shit going on. We need to think about uh, making the world a better place. I listen. I'm I'm way ahead of you. What 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 are you doing? What are you doing to make the world a better place here? Well, you know, I do what I can. Uh, I recycle. Um, sometimes at a Starbucks, I'll buy a coffee for the person behind me. I'll I'll pick up their tab. Okay. Before the pandemic, I would help little old ladies across the street. And I hear sometimes that the banks are running low on pennies. So we'll collect the pennies and we'll roll them and take them in to the bank. So I feel like I'm doing my part, you know, doing my share. Basically nothing. What are you doing to make the world a better place? I wasn't going to talk about this, but, uh, you know, I, my entire family uh, and I have now moved into a yurt. A what? A yurt, a yurt. It's a traditional uh, tent-like structure. Usually, you find them in like the Yukon or in the Mongolian plains. That's where we are in the in in Mongolia now, uh, and that's where we live now. Off, totally off the grid. You're not off the grid. You're speaking into a microphone and you're communicating with me via Wi-Fi. Well, I I brought the setup with me, and we have Netflix. I mean, we're not animals, obviously, but uh, but yeah. I mean, look, this is you. You're all about like these little changes, you know. Buy the guy a coffee behind you, and and like put yeah, throw your cans in the you, recycling. This is, this is how we're going to make the world a better place. You've got to start friend, somewhere, one small step at a time. Are you telling me you seriously have moved your family? I bet you're starting a cult out there in Mongolia. Did other I people a, move out there with you? Are they gathered around look, to hear your nightly sermons? I have a few wives, but it's necessary because I truly, like, I am of the opinion that there is no, like, little fixes to what ails us as a society. That it's time to burn the fucking thing down. That's a big statement. Start all over again. Bring all my books with me. And, of course, my podcasting equipment because I have to tell people that I'm starting all over again. And and just, just start anew. Like, rebuild civilization from the ground up. That's 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 how I think about it. You might be on to something because uh, with climate change in the future and so many other uh, gargantuan issues in front of us, maybe we do need wholesale change and not incremental change. So... I know who to talk to about this. Uh, who? Wow. What? The great, the one and only, Naomi Klein. Not Naomi Wolf? Different Naomi, right? Different Naomi. One's, one's crazy and one is smart. Oh, okay. Uh, we, okay. Get, we get the smart one. 
Okay, so you're talking about the author of No Logo and This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate, Naomi Klein? I'm talking about the author of The Shock Doctrine and The Take and Fences and Windows, that Naomi Klein. Fantastic. I love her. Let's get her in here. Naomi Klein, of course, is a award-winning, uh, best-selling author and thinker. She writes about... Uh, global economics and the free market and climate. Uh, she happens to be Radiohead's favorite author, which I will forever hate her for. Uh, she uh, lives in Canada. She's actually Canadian. Did you know that about Naomi Klein? That she's I did Canadian? not know that. I did not know that. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. She was, I just assume, like, everybody's American. I don't, you Malcolm know. Gladwell's Canadian. We've, we've had way too many Get Canadians on this here. show. No, for real. Yeah, we, we got to lower our Canadian quotient just slightly uh, after Naomi. Um, and uh, she has a new book. She's got a brand new book. This one is for kids. It's called How to Change Everything. So uh, how to change everything? Maybe this has some of the answers we've been looking for. Girl. That's what we're going to talk about. That's exactly what we're going to. How do we change everything? Naomi Klein, help us. Help us out with this. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for joining us on the Metaphysical Milkshake Pod. We are longtime fans of yours, uh, as I was gushing about you uh, off camera. The new book is called How to Change Everything. I'm so excited to talk about this. This is a big deal for us. Like, you know, we've had some pretty big guests. Not like Naomi Klein big. <laughs> That's right. You know, we've had like Malcolm Gladwell. Like, who cares about that guy? Honestly. <laughs> Overrated. Right? Am I right? The dude is fast. He just ran a race. He's like 50. No, he's like 60. He's not 60. He's 58 years old. He ran a mile in five minutes and 15 seconds. Oh, my Jesus. God. Naomi, truly a pleasure to meet you and um, to get to know your work in, in preparation for this interview. So excited to have you here and um, really excited for this topic. This is a this is a question that Reza and I struggle with, we deal with, we ponder, we go back and forth on a great deal. Mm -hmm. And it really was that, honestly, the, the title of this episode is the title of your book, How Convenient, How to Change Everything. Because <laughs> we yeah. would love to discuss this idea of changing everything. How is change actually achieved? But Let's get, uh, let's start specifically with your book. It's written for specifically a young audience. And you write in the book, the book is a celebration of a youth movement that is internationalist, multiracial, and peaceful, but militant and radical. Do you worry about, you probably get asked this question a lot about the appropriateness of, of having this discussion with, uh, you know, 12 year olds and all of these hard hitting facts? Yeah, I think about it a lot. And to be honest with you, my, my son is, um, he's turning nine in a couple of weeks. I don't, um, this book isn't for him. I, I, I think that, that I've read parts of it with him, but I, I edit it. 
um, as I read, um, which I do anyway. I do that with Harry <laughs> Potter. I'm like, Hermione's awesome. Why do you keep making her feel bad? I'm like, and everyone said, good for you, Hermione, for being so smart. Everyone needs to edit Harry Potter because she writes in 1,700 pages what could be written in about 400 pages. <laughs> as you know, you know, the book starts with this story of going to the Great Barrier Reef um, when he was only um, he was only four at the time, and he just learned to swim and um, and describing his sort of joy and wonder at discovering that there is this world under the sea, mm-hmm. um, a magical there really is a magical world under the sea for now for for now and but you know he saw one part, but there were lots of other parts that were di- that had died off. And that's why I was there. I was there making a short film for The Guardian. Um, and, you know, when I, as I got to that part in the book, I just kind of moved a few pages forward. <laughs> mm. Because I, I think for very young kids, our job as parents is to the extent that we can, is to connect them to the natural world, give them as many positive experiences in nature as we possibly can, because mm-hmm. They are inheriting a world on fire. They are going to have to fight for it. And it's better if they can fight from a place of love and connection, right? Like I, 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 we fight better that way when we're fighting for something that we love, right? Mm. Um, and I've, you know, I tell the story in the book of, of meeting an amazing young woman named Takata Iron Eyes at Standing Rock, who, when she was just 11, started a movement with her friends to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. They weren't fighting against the pipeline. They were fighting for their water. They were fighting for their land. And so the more we can create those positive experiences where, where kids know what they're fighting for, the better off they will be when they do have to join the climate movement, because we're all going to have to be in it one way or another. But, you know, this question of like, how do we protect our kids and you know, I, my son does know about climate change, not because I thought he was ready to learn about it when he was five, but because we were in the middle of wildfires. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, uh, we spend our summers, now we live in British Columbia, but we used to spend our summers here. It's where my parents live. And every summer it goes up in flames, just like California, right? Mm-hmm. So how, I would love not to have to explain this to my kid, but he's choking on the smoke. So I, all the adults around him are talking about it. Mm. So Kids, we have not protected our kids. This is the hard truth. This is, I think, Rain, why it is so hard to confront this, right? Is we have failed in our fundamental duty as parents, which is to protect our kids. And, and the we here is not, it's not, we're not all equally responsible. And lots of people have been trying to change things as, as we went. But we collectively as adults have not protected our kids if the, if we had, they wouldn't be inheriting this world. And so the given that we haven't protected them, given that they are inheriting this, um, the least we can do is empower them, right? And that's why throughout the book, these stories of incredible young people like Takata, like Greta, um, and so many other young people who are leading climate marches, stopping pipelines, suing the U.S. government for failing to protect their future, those are threaded throughout. So it isn't just the frightening reality of climate change um, that they're reading about. They're also reading about young people that hopefully they can relate to that are doing something about it. Because I was really impacted by Greta Thunberg's personal story. 
which I'm sure, you know, you've heard bits, some of, if not, you know, heard her speak about it, you know, and she's given a wonderful TED talk about it, where she tells this story where when she first heard about the, about climate change when she was 11, it sent her into such a state of despair that she couldn't eat or speak, right? And so young people know this is happening. And so if we tell ourselves that we're protecting them, I think there's a greater risk of losing them to despair. And I think the best, our, our best hope is, tell, is encouraging them to join movements so that they feel that they can do something about mm-hmm. it. Because look, they're not protected. They're not protected. We might, I, I wish we could protect them. So what I hear you saying is that the way that you can mitigate some of the echo anxiety that, you know, necessarily comes with explaining to young people. And my, my kid, my oldest are also nine. So I, I, I feel you, I'm, I'm in this place where, you know, we, we don't talk about climate change. We talk about pollution because yeah. I feel like those are things you can do something about. Um, but what you seem to be saying is put their energy into action to give them, give them stories of people who have succeeded in trying to make a difference and trying to change things. Um, and that's the best way to both inform them, educate them while at the same time, not, um, allowing them to kind of go into a kind of a state of nihilism about the whole thing. Like why, why even bother? Yeah. And I think I really learned that from Greta and, and her story where, what pulled her out of that state of despair was first changing her own behavior and her own family's behavior, but then starting the the Fridays for Future movement and, and, mm-hmm. and the climate strikes and closing that kind of cognitive dissonance, right, of, wait a minute, if this is all true, what I'm learning at school, why is everybody acting as if everything is normal? What, why aren't we all treating this like an emergency? Mm. And And so, you know, when young people go on climate strike, they are declaring a state of emergency. They're saying, you know, our job as kids is to go to school. So by not doing our job, they, they, they are declaring their own state of emergency. And it's not because they think they're going to solve the climate crisis by not going to school. They're trying to model what they want from adults, which <laughs> is, wait a minute, this stop acting like everything is normal. Um, yeah. You know, lay down in front of the train. Like, this is not working. Front page headline, Fox News, Naomi Klein tells children to lay down in front of trains. <laughs> Can you believe this liberal activist telling children to actually lie down in front of trains? Gong, gong. That is the primary message of the book, yes. Secondarily, I would say, the message is, well, frankly, you know, it's a it's an old one, which is that the youth is our only hope. Right? I believe that... the children are our future. <laughs> Precisely. Yes, that is exactly the, the the message. One thing they really do hate the young the youth, is if that... I may if I may channel, um, is they hate when we tell them that we are their hope. <laughs> yeah, that's I was just gonna say that is that Number one, yeah, because it puts you know, it puts this ridiculous amount of responsibility on their shoulders. By the way, a responsibility to fix the things that we fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> right? they're like, like, no, you're not off the hook. It also is indicative of the fact that we've been saying this for a really long time, I feel like. Like for every generation says the children are our future and that the youth is the hope. And, 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 and even after, you know, sort of profound, dramatic shifts in our society. You know, after 9-11, I remember 
I was one of the people saying 9-11 generation is going to change the way that we think about foreign policy. Eh. No. Uh, during the Vietnam War, the Vietnam War is going to change the relationship between the people and the government. Nope. 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 It didn't. Uh, I just feel like maybe, <laughs> maybe we say this so often because it doesn't seem to pan out the way that we always hope it does. And I wonder what you think is particularly unique about this generation, the generation that you're writing about, that makes you hope that maybe this one could be different. They're not going to do it on their own. They don't want to do it on their own. <laughs> we do need a multi-generational movement. Um, we need to back them up. Uh, but what I think is different is, <clears throat> you know, when I first started going to climate marches and listening to climate scientists like, 20 years ago, the whole discourse was like, we have to do this for the children. We have to do this for the grandchildren. But the children and the grandchildren were sort of like mute. Um, they were not involved in the discussion. Mm, um, some okay. of them were yeah. sort of notional, you know, future generations. And so I think that the big shift is that the children and the grandchildren are here. They're speaking for themselves. They're pissed off. Healthy snacks, Reza. Oh, I've got some thoughts on healthy snacks. Yeah, do tell. I mean, you know, look, they usually have a bad reputation. Sure. Everybody knows this. Let's be honest about it. But yeah. this episode of Metaphysical Milkshake is sponsored by Monk Pack. Monk let, Pack. Let me tell you something about Monk Pack. Please I do. am addicted to Monk Pack. They make snacks that taste just like your favorite sugary treats, but with one gram of sugar or less. Is there a 12-step program for Monk Pack? The Monk Pack Keto Nut and Seed Bars, they got this perfect balance of sweet and salty, that crunch from the whole nuts and seeds. It still manages to be soft and chewy. They come in delicious flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, caramel sea salt and peanut butter dark chocolate. Like My it. favorite one is this like cocoa and uh, coconut one. I personally love the great texture of the bars. They're not mm -hmm. too hard, but they're still crunchy mm -hmm. thanks mm -hmm. to all the, and the nuts and seeds. Try it yourself and you'll see. You don't have to take our word for it, people. And we have a special deal for our listeners. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack, M-U-N-K, monkpack.com and entering our code milkshake at checkout and monk pack is so confident in their product it's backed with 100 percent satisfaction guaranteed so if you don't like your monk pack what? bars they'll exchange a no, product no no no, no. send refund. it to me if you don't like it send it to me i'll eat it for you or they'll refund your money whichever you prefer so to get started go to monkpack.com that's m-u-n-k-p-a-c-k.com and select any product enter the code milkshake at checkout to save 20 percent off your purchase Monk Pack, delicious, nutritious food you can count on. And thank you, Monk Pack, for sponsoring this episode of Metaphysical Milkshake. And send me more bars, please. Listeners, we got sent to Manscaped sample bars. There are so many. So many ways. There's scissors and grooming clippers and trimmers and tweezers. So our friends at Manscaped have a new fourth generation, brand new lawnmower 4.0. Kick your pubes to the next planet with the performance package 4.0. The orbits in your pants will feel like you're in zero gravity. They're really going with this metaphor. Join the 2 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped and get your rocket ready for takeoff. Hey-oh! By going to manscaped.com for 20% off plus free shipping with the code MILKSHAKE. Listen, don't mess around here, okay? You're talking about your balls. 
All right. What are you going to you're going to just use anything? You don't want to use little scissors down there. No, you poke yourself in the scrotum. What if you sneeze? If you're ready for an out of world experience, you got to look no further than the performance package 4.0 from Manscaped. It's just been taken off not only in the U.S., by the way, but in Canada, in U.K., across Europe. So inside the package, you're going to find the lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, the weed whacker, ear and nose trimmer. Got that. The crop preserver ball deodorant. I got that and I used it and my balls are so okay, fresh. That, too much TMI. All right. So get 20% off plus free shipping with the code, you know it, milkshake at manscaped.com. So that's 20% off plus free shipping. All you got to do is use the code milkshake at manscaped.com for a clean Trinity and beyond. Your space balls will thank you. I think one of the things that is really um, you know, held us back from acting in the face of the climate crisis is this idea that it was this abstract threat, that it was for some other people to worry about, um, and not for the people in the here, here and now to contend with. And what, when this generation talks about the climate crisis, crisis they, talk to, they talk about um, their schools closing because of poor air quality, because of wildfires. They talk about living through Hurricane Maria. They talk about um, having their lives already disrupted, right? So I think that that lends a sense of urgency that the movement hasn't really had in the North, um, in, in, in richer countries. Um, but also, I think the biggest shift is, it, for this generation, it isn't just the climate crisis that makes them think that they need a revolution. <laughs> it's all kinds of things. Like they see, they, yeah. they, they, they see a system in overlapping failure, right? So for these kids, since they've been paying attention, Donald Trump was president, right? That was a crisis. Um, they've seen children torn from their parents' arms at the border. They, they, um, they are, they have marched in Black Lives Matter demonstrations. They are, um, online and dealing and, and experience the failure of tech companies to protect them, right? They're dealing with sort of a predatory information ecology. So I would say that, um, 10 years ago, the climate movement was like, okay, we've got climate change. How do we, keep things pretty much exactly how they are, but stop climate change. Um, and that actually doesn't work. <laughs> um, well, for those listening who may not know, why doesn't that work? Because I talk about this a lot. Like, you know, the, the, the impulse uh, 10 years ago was like, we've got to stop CO2 and methane. And, and we do. And we certainly need to stop CO2 and methane. And that's got to be a top priority. But it goes way deeper than that. But for those listening that may not quite get that, what's your nutshell version? Okay, well, even just talking about CO2 and methane, right? Um, the, these, there, there are some of the richest companies on the planet um, that are valued based on their reserves of carbon um, and methane. And their entire valuation in the market has to do with not just what they are producing right now, but the fact that they've laid claim to huge amounts of fossil fuels that they have not yet, that, that, that they have not yet even started to dig up, but those are their fossil fuel reserves. Um, and so that is worth trillions of dollars. Um, and so 
It is actually a really big challenge to capitalism to say, um, you know, that $20 trillion worth of carbon, um, you need to leave it in the ground. We're going to wipe that off the books. That is exactly what the International Energy Agency just said in a report that came out on May 18th, that we cannot build new fossil fuel infrastructure. We can't have new fossil fuel projects. We actually need to start winding down existing fossil fuel infrastructure. So the problem isn't that we can't do wind and solar. It's that we've got these um, we've got these kind of carbon bombs, right, that are bombs for the planet, but they're also bombs for the market, right? So it isn't just like a little technical problem to say we can't burn that. It actually is a huge problem for capitalism to contend with that reality. Um, But then I think underneath it and deeper than that, and that's, I think, what you're getting at, Ryan, is that it's it's not just a technical sort of CO2 problem. It's a consumption problem. It is what we think we need in order to lead good lives. 70% of the fossil fuel of, of, of emissions, of greenhouse gas emissions, come from 20% of the wealthiest people on the planet. So it isn't everybody on the planet who's over-consuming. It's 20% of people on the planet who are over-consuming. And we have a definition of a good life that, that is every generation has more than the generation before, more and more and more. It doesn't contend with limits. And so the deeper crisis is we have to live within the Earth's limits. We can't just treat the planet as, it, as if it is our limitless superstore yep. <laughs> right. uh, to deplete. You, you said that the, the deeper problem really is a consumption problem. I would go even further and say that the problem is a relationship problem, and it's a relationship problem of ourselves to the planet uh, and our, ourselves to each other. And you write in your book, the earth is not our prisoner, our patient, our machine, or indeed our monster. It is our entire world. And the solution to global warming is not to fix the world. It is to fix ourselves. Easy. Yeah, super easy. The problem is human nature. That should just like, no, take care of itself. No, it's not human nature. It's well, a certain worldview. It's a certain worldview of certain humans. Let's just go back to the very beginning because- where and when do you think humanity went wrong? Because one issue that I have with like, let's call it the political left, but or the academic left is me. You mean me? Well, it is you. It's become very easy to kind of blame all of this on capitalism and imperialism of the last 400 years, like as if this all started with Columbus and it all started with like the the East India Tea Company or something like that, and then has gotten us to the modern day. But I want to get to the roots of this. Like, this is an ancient human problem, this relationship problem that we're talking about, humans to the earth and humans to each other. So, but how would you put your finger on when and where we went wrong? So I do believe colonialism has a hell of a lot to answer for. Like colonialism, like in like the Mongolian invasion, that colonialism or... So I think that this this idea that it is human nature, I'm not saying that humans have not waged war, depleted resources since before European colonialism. They have. Um, But it's also true that many, many people managed to live in a relationship to nature that was regenerative, that was relational. Um, and that when we tell this certain kind of story that says it is 
just something inherent in all humans that they just want to destroy where they live and deplete where they live. I don't know where that leaves indigenous communities that had relationships to the land that were so spiritual and, um, and, and, and were, you know, beyond relationships of stewardship, but actually relationships based on the idea that all of life is a literal relatives. Um, now, I'm speaking to you from British Columbia. Okay, I'm just going to get real. Like, like this will get a bit heavy. Let's get real. A few days ago, in, in, in not far from where I am in British Columbia, I, I am a, a, an indigenous community um, uh, issued a, a press release. Um, in it, the First Nation is called the Sequetmuk Nation um, in the interior of BC, and they said that they had this news that was absolutely devastating to have to share, which is that they had um, done uh, a radar surveys of the land of a, where a former residential school, a boarding school, where they took um, Indigenous children um, for many decades, uh, um, had found that there was a mass grave site. And you probably heard about this, a mass grave site where they found uh, the bodies of 215 uh, children, including uh, children as young as th- as three. Um, now, this is something that we knew happened in Canada. That we knew that people disappeared in the residential schools, and there was a, there was a Truth and Reconciliation um, uh, report that came out a few years ago after interviewing hundreds of survivors um, and doing deep deep research. And they found in the, the, the in the report they didn't just lay out what happened. They talked about why it happened. Why were Indigenous people banned from practicing their ceremonies, speaking their language? Why was their hair cut? Why were children taken from their parents? And and they concluded that it was in order to sever their relationship with the land so that they could have these extractive policies that people were were standing in the way of. So, um, you know, I think... I don't think we should just dismiss the idea that colonialism um, was one group of people violently, wrenchingly, brutally imposing a worldview that saw um, relationships, a a worldview where you would see all of life as your relative as such a threat um, that children were killed for practicing what they were told was a satanic religion um, because believing in animism, believing, you know, ha- having a spirituality that represented animals, you know, in, in carvings was seen as Satan worship, right? That has a ton to answer for in why we find ourselves um, treating the world as a machine. And I know that people like Jared Diamond have written these books that tell people, oh, humans have always done this, have always depleted the earth. And I just don't accept from what I've seen in indigenous communities. And, you know, you should interview an indigenous person and it will answer this for you to you better than me, that this is just human nature. And I think when we say it's human nature, um, that feeds a, that, a sense of helplessness. Like if it is just this is just something inherent in us. All humans just destroy their habitat. Then there is no hope. We should absolutely throw mm-hmm. in the towel. But if mm-hmm. this is actually a system that we can make visible and a worldview that said, actually, there's a hierarchy of humanity, there's God on top, there's angels underneath, then there's white men, 
Then there's white women and just go on down Mm -hmm. until there's like rocks and trees, which are less worthless. That worldview is what allows you to treat the earth as if, you know, anything that stands in the way of the oil or the gold or whatever it is, is just, you know, as the mining industry calls it overburden. That's the way, that's the way they view the natural world. Not everybody on this planet sees the natural world that way, sees trees and soil as overburdened. That is a particular way of seeing the world. And it is a way that has gotten us into the mess we're in. Folks, if you know anything about us, you know that we can't get enough of Wandrium. 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 W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. Wandrium. It's a streaming service that brings you mind-blowing moments into your everyday lives. If you're familiar with The Great Courses Plus, oh yeah, yeah, then you Absolutely. already know Wondrium. It's the same great service, but now there's even more to learn and to love. With Wondrium, you can explore thousands of hours of fascinating video and audio content, documentaries, tutorials, travel logs, you find, name it. Find answers to questions we've always wondered about and uh, even questions that uh, we've never even thought to ask. Yeah. So we recommend checking out, hey, Hey, author of Zealot, best-selling New York Times author of Zealot. It's no joke. This is the kind of stuff that I'm totally into. So right now, I'm so into the history and archaeology of the Bible. Like, it's just such a great refresher for me. It, it views the stories of the Bible from a historical and archaeological lens. It's my jam. So we know you're going to love Wondrium, listeners, as much as we do. Please use our special URL so they know that we sent you, Rain and Reza. Go to Wondrium.com. Just do this. Go to wondrium.com slash milkshake. And for a limited time, sign up and you'll get a free month trial of unlimited access. That's wondrium, W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash milkshake. Again, wondrium.com slash milkshake. Sign up today. It'll make you smarter. So I got my second shipment of Magic Spoon. Mm -hmm. Okay, so four new boxes. All four flavors. I keep them at my desk. I didn't even put them in the kitchen. Magic Spoon, this magic cereal that I'm talking about, has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, only four net grams of carbs in each serving. I don't know how they do this. It has only 140 calories a serving, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, GMO-free. This, no, this can't be true. Have you tried mixing the peanut butter and the chocolate together? Like you put it together, grab one fistful of each, shove it in your giant mouth. It's like eating a peanut butter I do have cup. a big mouth. Yeah. It's like regular cereal from your childhood. Remember that? But it's super nutritious. It's a delicious but super healthy cereal that really brings joy to your mornings or afternoons or dinners or snacks or late night snacks. So this is what you do. Go to magicspoon.com slash milkshake and grab a variety pack and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code milkshake at checkout to save $5 off of your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com slash milkshake and use the code milkshake to save $5 off. You know, Magic Spoon with a milkshake poured on top of it? Oh, oh. With an actual milkshake. I'm going to go do that right now. Go to In-N-Out Burger, get a milkshake. Pour it on the Magic Spoon. I'm, do- I'm doing that right now. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. You know, Rain and I, we, we as you can uh, already tell, we, we have a lot of different disagreements about, you know, we, 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 have, we share the same values. We share the same world with you, frankly. But I think we, we have different ideas about how to achieve 
um, you know, the goals that we have in common. And fundamental to that debate is a debate that's actually raging right now, you know, with the Biden administration and with progressives on one side and, you know, whatever, center Democrats on the other or whatever. But this idea that there are unquestionable, undeniable uh, foundational problems with our society, with our government, with our world. But is the proper way to fix those problems, the proper way to address them, is it to work within the system, to turn screws, make incremental changes, fix this and that in hopes that the results will, will be better? Or is the answer to kind of start from the beginning and, and uh, you know, burn the whole system down, start with the foundation? I mean, the one, the one thing I would just clarify is it's capitalists who are unbelievably radical. Like it's it it's it's capitalism that is burning it down. Okay, that's a good point. Yeah, it's actually a sort of a strange reversal what climate change does to this conversation because if you look at what those young people are doing, who sort of inform you know they're they they're, they look scruffy and they're occupying Nancy Pelosi's office and things like that. Th- their message is actually pretty conservative. They're like. We want a future. Um, <laughs> and it's like Joe Manchin who's like, let's let the whole thing burn. Let's let the whole thing burn. Yeah, exactly. What I believe is that the future is radical one way or another. And we're having a conversation about what kind of radical we want. Because if we stay on the road we're on and do those sort of like little incremental changes, it takes us to an incredibly radical place both physically in terms of what will happen to the natural world, but also politically and socially in terms of what it looks like when that pyramid society, when a society that is intensely hierarchical, that has not challenged its inherent white supremacy, um, confronts that, that scarcity and crisis. It looks like hoarding. It looks like fortress borders. It looks like a resurgence of just unmasked kind of ecofascism of like, well, maybe climate change is a calling. Maybe this is God's will. Um, hmm. It's not my problem. I mean, it's it's not hard to imagine what the people who already as- subscribe to that intensely hierarchical worldview, how they will start to rationalize the reality of climate disruption once they get past the denial and they are starting to get past it. Um, it's like, well, maybe it's good that there there be fewer people on the planet, right? And as long as me and mine are fine. Um, so... That is one form of radicalism. I think it's a really bad form of radicalism and we should do everything else to, with everything in our power to avoid it. But in order to avoid it, that's going to take some really radical economic and political change. So the idea that one of our choices is things staying kind of as they are and us sort of tinkering, that's not one of the options on the table. Like there isn't a scenario where, where, where the future is just like the present. Uh, only with a few t- tweaks. The radicalism we're in, like we've just come through COVID barely, you know, like we are in an era of, of big shocks and big changes. And the question is, do we just let them happen because we're too afraid of political and economic change? Or do we try to shape this somehow? I'm in a hundred percent agreement. Um, and I think the system, the systemic change needs to be uh, tremendous and earth shattering, earth shaking, um, because it's the future of our earth. And I love the word radical, but let me just pose this. I'm going off script a little bit. 
part of the radical systemic change we're talking about is not just politics, right? I mean, it's a radical systemic change on our relationship to stuff and how mm-hmm. we consume and how we relate one to another. I agree. And that, I think, brings us back to this question of what is the crisis? And is it, a, you know, I, I think it is a crisis of worldview, Um and it is a crisis of consumption, of overconsumption, which is intimately connected to that. Because I think we are more and more forming our identities through what we consume. And a lot of the ways that we, you know, as humans have traditionally formed group identities and had a sense of belonging um, are in decline. You know, one of the reasons why I've been such a strong proponent of a, the Green New Deal um, as a response to the climate crisis is that it's a framework that is that draws on American history and at a time in American history when there was a sense of collective mission and purpose. And, you know, when you see that kind of frantic, frenetic overconsumption, right, that you're referring to, I always ask, okay, what are people really shopping for? Like, is it, is it actually the thing they're buying or is it... Or, or is it yeah. fitting in, self-esteem, yeah. connection, community. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, you you probably remember this from er, becoming you know parents for the first time. But some some of the biggest overconsumers are new parents, right? Oh, totally. And, and it's not just we because, are suckers. We're suckers because we're scared. You're in a state of extreme insecurity when you're about to become a parent for the first time, right? That is so true. And it's like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I need that bouncy chair. Like I need three of them. Like I, you know, and it's like, I, I remember that when I first, be, first became a mom, like I've never shopped like that before. I'm really embarrassed about it because when I was pregnant, <laughs> so I was true. like, I'm not going to buy anything. I'm just going to like, it's all going to be hand-me-downs. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. Those like um, bespoke warmers for the, yeah. for the, you know, like the wipes. Now you don't just have audio monitors. You've got to have the video monitor uh-huh. as well. Ours changes. Ours like changes colors and sounds. Oh my God. And- I had like a swing for my son that was just like a light <laughs> Show and the diaper genie. <laughs> I mean, it just uh, whatever. Like first time parents, we will yeah. buy anything. And it comes from a place of raw terror. Yep. Because, Fear. And, yeah. and a lot of consumption does, right? So yeah, coming back to the Green New Deal, the, the, the stuff that I love most about the original New Deal are like the Civilian Conservation Corps, where t- 2 million young people, you know, 18 to 21, went out and planted trees, 2 billion trees, um, learned about forest ecology, um, or you know, the huge programs that funded murals and theater. And, and this, is, this was group activity that filled the need for belonging and identity and mission. Mm. Um, and I just think that you don't get at overconsumption by wagging your finger and telling people that they're idiots and bad because they want that thing. You try to fill the thing that people are shopping for um, that isn't the thing that they're buying um, mm. in some other way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think we need to think about how do, how, how do we... How do we give people that sense of belonging and identity and mission and purpose? Um, and, you know, stopping climate change is a pretty good mission. Um, and we need, we need, young people need stuff to do right mm-hmm. now. There's a huge youth unemployment crisis and mental health crisis. At the core of this argument about incremental versus systemic change, and the New Deal is the, the model of what I'm talking about here, and so is the Green New Deal, is this kind of willingness to simply say, we are in a state of emergency. Joe Manchin, you can go fuck yourself. 
okay, uh, that we're just going to plow through you instead of trying to find, you know, common cause with people who are destroying our future. Joe, Joe Manchin can go fuck himself, but the people who <laughs> Joe Manchin represents should get jobs and amazing green infrastructure and the constituency for the Green New Deal should be built around Joe Manchin. Um, so I think that we, we've equated this idea of, of, of uh, bipartisanship and, and reaching across difference to this really, really narrow group of people in Washington, D.C., um, who are doing actually a pretty poor job of representing the people who put them there. Um, and that was, I think, one of the really great things. Uh, and, I, I, you know, FDR did a lot of terrible things. Let's, you know, he interned Japanese-Americans. The, the, the original New Deal, um, you know, was during the Jim Crow era, and there was um, rampant discrimination in who received relief. Women were excluded um, from many of the key programs. He did get some things really right, and he got a lot of things wrong. Um, one of the things he got right, I think, was his attitude of just taking it to the people, right? So if you, I, I mentioned this, the, the, the uh, Civilian Conservation Corps, this amazing program that planted more than 2 billion trees. That's more than half the trees ever planted in the history of the U.S. Um, 800 state parks were built by the Civilian Infra uh, Conservation Corps. Um, we still benefit from so much of that infrastructure. Um, so if you look at where he cited the CCC camps, um, he cited them, <laughs> it must have been deliberately, in many of the communities that voted against him the first time he ran for president. Um, ah. And he flipped them. So if you go then and look at the, at the voting map in, in, in um, 1936, many of those red districts flipped blue. And they had New Deal programs, right? So that's bipartisan. It's just go moving around a sort of the, the, the obstructionists. And it is in local communities where I think you, you have the best opportunities to reach across the real aisle, you know, for people to come into conversation with their neighbors, find common ground. And the idea that we just um, allow the Senate to represent, you know, what that conversation should look like, I think is really flawed. One of the things that um, I love about your work and one of the most inspiring, cool things I've ever heard in my life, I heard you talk about uh, this LEAP. Yeah, we wrote a document called the LEAP Manifesto. You, you brought together a coalition of disparate groups seeking change in all different respects. Some were union groups, some were education groups, environmental groups, uh, native indigenous groups. And you and you decided to come up with a manifest, manifesto of what does the future look like? What do we want the future to look like? What are we striving for? And this is such a brilliant concept because all of these little disparate organizations working in their, you know, in their little beehives. And, and I think culturally we're in this kind of point where um, a lot of the mistake that we're making currently is kind of like pointing out and protesting injustice, but, but, but that's all we do. It's like, hey, there's an injustice. That's terrible. Oh, look, there's another injustice. That's bad. Oh my God, there's another injustice. Oh, that's terrible. But this idea of like coming together and, and saying, what are we ultimately striving for mm -hmm. um, so that we have something to shoot for? It gives all of us in the struggle, no matter what our path may be, a path forward. Can you tell us more about this? Uh, 
idea and organization? The core principles of the LEAP are, are the core principles of environmental justice, of climate justice, which are, the first one is front lines first. So the idea that the people who got the shittiest deal in our current economy of extraction, who have the fossil fuel projects in their backyards, whose lands have been polluted, need to be first in line to own and control their own green infrastructure, their own renewable energy. So it's a process of really making reparation uh, for, the, for harm done. Uh, another core principle is that no worker should be left behind. So workers who lose their jobs in high carbon sectors um, need to be guaranteed jobs at the same salary level, at the same benefit level mm. um, in, the, in the low carbon economy. Uh, another core principle is that care work is climate work, and we need to invest in the in the parts of our economy that actually um, increase well-being much, much more than consumption, uh, increased consumption. Um, and the other one is, and sorry if this is mean to Joe Manchin, it's polluters should pay. <laughs> yeah. um, because I actually believe that justice isn't just um, that the people who um, have been hurt by this system benefit. It's also that the people who cause the harm actually have to be accountable for that. We have to just get on the right track and give people a taste of what that change could look like. Because I think that once we start having that lived experience, then we just want more of it. In your view, what does this leap forward, better future world actually look like? Yeah, I think oh, at the heart of it is decolonization. Um, and in the people whose land was stolen are still around. It didn't work. We didn't wipe out indigenous cultures. Um, and one of the things I would love to see is a return of that civilian conservation corps where we repair some of the damage we've done to the earth, where we plant huge numbers of trees, but it's indigenous people who get their land back and are in charge of that. And lead us in a spiritual revolution, Rain, because I think it is can be pretty spiritual to get a lot of people out on the land pl planting trees if we do it right, if they're not tree farms, um, you know, but it's actually about being back in relationship with the land and each other. Um, and I've, you know, been in some spaces like that, and it really can change the way you see the mm. world. Naomi Klein, thank you so much for uh, this incredible conversation, but hold on. You thought it was over? What we do with every guest is a what, Reza? I believe it's called a lightning round. I have test phobia, by the way. Well, you, you are being graded. No big deal, but Malcolm Gladwell got an A. He did um, so okay. well on this. Of he was incredible. Of course he did. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll ask you a question, and then you just answer with kind of the first thing that comes to your mind. Are you ready? What skill do you wish you had? I wish I could sing, like Rain. Uh, what is something you would change about yourself if you could? Oh, I wish I was more patient um, with my adorable son. What's one habit that you're most proud of? I can't not write, I guess. I cannot write. That's yeah, fantastic. It itches. It, it, I, it, for me, it's like an itch. Like, I'm like, why am I so uncomfortable? <laughs> oh, it's because I didn't write. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, I, I, I act like somebody's making me. And then it's like, no, it's just you. Yeah. <laughs> when do you feel most connected with the universe? I feel most connected to the universe. Um, like I said, I'm in British Columbia. We've still got some beautiful, tr big, giant cedars here. Mm -hmm. um, probably, probably the forest. If you could have coffee with a 15-year-old Naomi Klein, Oof. what would you tell her? Oh, dear. 15 was a rough, rough, rough age. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you are never, ever going to have to see those girls again. 
Oh, that's a good one. What is one book that has changed your life? It's a little bit cliche for 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 a climate writer, but um, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring, unsurpassed for me. What three items would you take with you on a deserted island? I definitely bring like a guide to the stars so that I could, because um, I wouldn't have much to do. Um, <laughs> I bring like a mask so that I could go snorkeling and look at the fishies because I think I'd need like a friend's company with the fishes and um, notebook. Oh, geez, three. So now I don't have a pen. Uh, describe your soul <laughs> in 10 words or less. Oh, reaching, um, awestruck. Loving. I love that. Three good ones. <laughs> That's great. And then finally, what is your life's big question? Whew. Are we going to get our shit together in time? Yeah. Well, you're doing something <laughs> about that. So yeah. you're doing your utmost to try and make sure that we are and that we do. And I seriously applaud you for that because that is, it is hard work what you do and bless you. This book is fantastic. I'm going to buy a bushel of them and Uh give them to uh, a bunch of like 11 to 14 year olds. Yeah. Makes a great Christmas present. It's pretty radical. I will warn you parents, it is radical and it is worth it. They're ready for it. Wow. So Naomi's uh, life's big question was, Hey, humanity, are we going to get our shit together in time? Reza, any thoughts on that? And maybe piece that together with this systemic change you're blathering on and on about. I mean, look, you know, I want to say yes. I really want to say yes. But I look at not just, you know, our politics. And I I hear you. Like, we, we sometimes focus too much on politics. Maybe it's because we feel like it's something we can bitch about. But even about our worldviews, the fact that the human condition, in my view, is entropy. <laughs> and I, it it really makes me nervous whether hmm. we can get our shit together in time. So if I had to say, if the only answers were yes and no, I'm going to say no. Well, I don't think the only answers are yes and no. I mean, I view it as, listen, I have a bunch of relatives that um, I had to put into rehab, okay? like serious, like heroin rehab. Mm. And for me, it's kind of like humanity is a junkie. And we're uh, we're junked Mm. out on oil and stuff and distraction. um, And it's nonstop. And we're, we're going to hit bottom. It's just how bad are we going to hit bottom? That's it. You know, it's good. Things are going to get really bad. There's going to be, you know, the whole Syria war by the way, which caused this huge migration and this this giant, you know, crisis of, of immigrants in Europe and Greece and blah, 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 that we've been hearing about, started from climate change. You know, it started from uh, the worst drought in the Middle Eastern history. That's right. So we're going to get a lot more of that kind of stuff going on. And, you know, millions will suffer. There's going to be a tremendous amount of suffering. It's just how bad. And and that's always up to the addict. How, how bad how low do they need to go before they clean up their act and drag their ass to rehab and throw mm. up their hands and say, I'm powerless. I have an addiction. I'm I'm over this. I throw in the white Nothing flag. Nothing else is working. Nothing yeah. else is working. I yeah. Whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do. 
and you drag to rehab and then, you know, you you sip orange juice and sit in a circle and um, talk about your feelings. Yeah. What do you think, dear listener? Uh, are we going to get our shit together? Uh, how can we change everything? Are the children our future? I believe the children are our future. I've, I've heard you. I've heard you believe that. Before. Yeah. All right, metaphysical fans, we are about to record our favorite segment, our newly favorite segment, where we respond to listener voicemails, some of our listeners who have pondered some of our life's biggest questions. To potentially have you on the show, to chat with you, to visit with you, to hear about your life's biggest questions, to hear your thoughts on the episodes, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts telling us what your life's biggest question is. Screenshot it, then tag us on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake, and we'll be selecting a few people to chat with. We would love to have you. So for this episode, we've got a few interesting voicemails, some good comments. Let's run the first one. This is from Akash. How do we change everything to save the climate? I think saving is a cover-up. Our humans, we humans want to feed our ego and we want to create destructive things in order to have positive things in contrast so that we can get a lot of stories out of it. People have been doing so much work uh, since forever, but we're still not able to save the climate because I think everything uh, boils down to our ego and not really saving it. So if we stop creating destructive things, there is no need to actually save or uh, do in contrast. And in summary, but if we really want to do it, I think we should stop uh, eating non-veg. We should stop killing animals because the amount of pain that gets released in the environment. And we know everything is energy, right? Everything, every atom, solid, say, liquid, it doesn't matter. Everything is energy and energy is in momentum always. It's moving. So the amount of pain that is released, the amount of carbon dioxide, the water, the wastage that is released into the environment, it affects us. Nobody knows us, but if we are conscious of it, right? And I feel, yeah, if we do stop eating, consuming non-veg, humans will still live. It's not like we're all going to die because there is no meat on the planet Earth in day one. So I think, uh, yeah, we should stop eating that. Okay. He's got a point. Yeah, what do you think? Like, if there's one act, let's just say, like, of all the different things that you could do to save this planet, if there's one thing that rises above the rest, it would be, yeah, stop eating meat. Now, I, I'm this is coming from a meat eater, by the way. Um, but... I agree, and uh, you well, know, well, you're Persian. You eat kebab. Yeah, kebab. I don't have a choice. It's it's culture for me, so I don't really have a choice. But you know, like I, I, I'm eating less and less meat. You're eating less and less meat, and we're getting the technologies now. I mean, have you had an Impossible Burger? Shit is good. It's fantastic. Shit is. I mean, it's forty dollars, but whatever. But it's really, really good. And I think that you know, talking about what can we do to maybe save the environment in the future. I think eventually replacing real meat with fake meat might not be such a bad idea. Thanks, Akash. I always tell young people the number one way if you want to do something about climate change is to stop eating beef. Now, you can stop eating red meat. You can stop eating all meat. None of it's good. But beef is... And I loved how he conflated um, pain and carbon dioxide. It's like, stop eating meat and stop causing pain and stop releasing so much carbon dioxide. And what a perfect integration of the spiritual and the scientific uh, at the same time. I, I Let's just skip the pain part for the time being, which may or may not be true because animals die and you can kill them ethically, I suppose. Um, but 
Uh, it is absolutely true. The amount of waste that uh, goes hand in hand with meat eating is astronomical. I don't need to say it here. Everyone knows it's about Out of the, control. the amount of water and soybean feed for the cows, deforestation, which adds to climate change on its own, cow methane farts and burps. Um, it is um, it is no bueno. So good. Okay. So how do we change everything? Start with your own diet, folks. There you have it. I think we got somebody else here. Uh, uh, Andrew. Yeah. So I want to talk about the climate change question. Um, and unfortunately, I actually think that we, unless we drastically change everything, including how we operate our day-to-day lives and the economic system we are in, we're doomed. We, we desperately need to get away from oil consumption and long and all this long distance travel that relies on it. The, the plastics all of this is is building up and building up and in order to save the climate we need to trash capitalism and and unless into in a lesser extent trash globalism we need to focus on doing everything that we can to make and create locally while holding other people accountable as well. And I just don't think we have the ability to do that with how reliant we are on the technologies we have created that are based on this endless extraction and exploitation of the environment. That's a great idea. What I'd like to do is stop using oil to heat my house and instead uh, use Andrew's sonorous voice. Yeah, I mean, this is, listen, anytime you have a discussion about changing the world and especially around climate, you start to unpack it and more and more you realize that our whole system foundationally needs to change. The the kind of consumerist culture that we live in um, that is uh, capitalist and product a profit seeking rather um, is uh, it's not sustainable. So I'm sorry, all you capitalists out there. You know uh, we don't really have a better system than capitalism, as far as I'm concerned. But something has got to change because this. Um, I was just reading this article today on uh, the environmental impact of these giant cargo ships that go back and forth between tw- China and the U.S. and China and Europe, just chock-a-block filled with stuff from, you know, ping-pong balls to flip-flops to baseball caps to, you know, butterscotch and and anything else you can think of, toothbrushes, and uh, we can't it can't sustain. It just can't sustain. I don't what else, what what new can we say about this idea, Reza? I mean, look, if you're going to have a conversation about how to change everything and you're not putting fossil fuels on the table, then what the fuck are you doing? Like I'm not interested in mm-hmm. this conversation then. Uh you know, this was great. I mean, look, people are constantly like, you know, oh, the problems of the world are so big, you know, how can we tackle them? And I totally feel you. I I'm in I'm in the same boat. But what I love about these two callers, Akash and uh, Andrew, is that each of them basically said the one thing that you could do that would literally change everything. Sure. Stop eating yep. at least, you know, beef and get rid of fossil fuels. Done. You do those two things 
and you have changed everything. And then throw in kind of buy and support locally, support buying locally, mm -hmm. as opposed to the one click of the Amazon button, which I am a little bit addicted to, <laughs> you know? I hear you. Um, so there you have it. Well, that was well, great. Uh, thank you, callers. We'd love to hear from you. Please uh, write us at Metaphysical Milkshake on Instagram. Please, again, over and over again, we're going to say it. Like, follow, subscribe, rate, review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you, and we love folding our listeners and viewers into the discussion. You can find us on socials at Reza Aslan and at Rain Wilson. We are also on Twitter at Meta Milk Podcast and on Instagram at Metaphysical Milkshake. Let us know. Let us know your life's big questions on said socials, and we might just explore them on a future episode. And please remember to follow, rate, like, review Metaphysical Milkshake on Apple Podcasts and wherever else you listen to your GD podcasts. And of course, you can also subscribe to the Metaphysical Milkshake YouTube channel. Watch our full episodes every week, assuming there is a future. <laughs> if there is, we will see you in it. If we don't see you in the future, well, then you know what happened. We, that's it. The yeah. writing was on the wall. Thank you, Naomi Klein, for doing the deep dive with us and the whole Milkshake team. Thank you so much, everybody. We'll see you very soon. Metaphysical Milkshake is executive produced by Rain Wilson, Reza Aslan, and Colin Thompson. It's produced by Safa Samizadeh Yazd, Harris Lane, Mick Demaria, Hashem Self, and DJ Lubel. Cast Media is the production and distribution partner. It is edited by Tyler Newbold and audio mixed by Justin Kyle. Original music is composed by Jeff Tang. He has an MSNBC logo tattooed on his back, Naomi. <laughs> the it's a tramp stamp, right? Right at the lower back. 